Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 27th, we are studying 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. As a fellow pastor himself, St. Peter exhorts other men in the office of the Holy Ministry to shepherd the flock of God willingly, eagerly, and humbly in anticipation of the day when the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, appears. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it's great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Flammy, let's talk context. We are in the last chapter of this epistle. What do we need to know going in? Going into this epistle, uh, remember that St. Peter is writing this for the Roman provinces in Asia Minor, uh, what we modern day, in modern day terms, we call Turkey. And as we, I'm sure you and your uh, and your hearers have been going through First Peter, you've been astounded and uh, and blessed by the beautiful preaching of the gospel that Peter gives to the church. Uh, he speaks of the sacrifice of Christ and the and the precious price of His blood in such beautiful terms, and he also exalts the means by which the blood of Christ comes to us. So, like in First Peter chapter three, you have the famous words about how baptism, which corresponds to Noah and his family in the ark during the flood, this corresponds to baptism, and it now saves you. Right? Uh, we also have moved in this section in the last what two thirds of First First Peter, we've moved into a table of duty section. Uh, Saint Peter has been encouraging Christians. Uh, in their vocations, in their callings from God to be faithful. Faithful, yes, in hearing the gospel and remembering Christ and his blood, his sacrifice and their redemption, but faithful in letting the love of God flow through them for their neighbors. And this begins in the government. For the sake of the Lord, we are subject to every human institution. If it's to the emperor, right, or to governors, it doesn't matter if they're wicked or evil. We are still to honor them and speak of them as God's instruments and servants on this earth. Uh, Within the home, you have servants and you have masters. And uh, so also, uh, when we are servants in the household or we have positions of lesser authority and we have people over us, even if we're abused or even if we are uh, sinned against, that doesn't excuse us from Christian acts of love. And St. Peter is very good in speaking about this, that just as Christ suffered unjustly, so we are to conform ourselves to the image of Christ in suffering unjustly and loving our neighbor in return, right? Uh, uh, He talks about wives and husbands. Some of the most beautiful words concerning Christian wives are found in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, where he talks about how a Christian woman has the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And in God's sight, this is very precious, right? Uh, That she should be submissive to her husband in the same way as Sarah was submissive to Abraham, calling him Lord, right? And in doing that, in submitting to, uh, to her Lord, to her husband, it actually comes with this wonderful benefit of being set free from fear, which is an interesting thing in uh, 
chapter 3, verse 6. And the husbands, for the sake of their prayers, are to treat their wives not as lesser organisms, right? Slaves uh, or robots that they can command and treat as if they're non-persons. Rather, they are fellow heirs of salvation. And because of that, they are to treat them as such with honor, dignity, respect, and sacrificial love. If they do this, they are able to continue in faith towards God and having a pure conscience and offering up their petitions to God, right? And then it's interesting. So like in uh, 1 Peter 3, 8, he says, all of you, he speaks to the the whole Christian people and talking about how, yes, persecutions are going to come, right? People are going to malign you, but you have been called upon to love, to bless, uh, to give a defense, right? To make an apology for the sake of, of Christ. So when people ask you, hey, why do you suffer for all of this? Why do you have hope? Uh, don't you see that the world is being taken away from you? The Christian can respond, I know Christ, and then explain who Christ is and what he has done, right? Mm. Uh, in the fourth chapter, I'm looking at my Bible here, and I have lots of underlined words, which means it's very important, but I, my eyes can't catch anything in particular, <laughs> right? Uh, well, let's just jump to the back half of chapter four, right? Uh, St. Peter says that we must share in Christ's sufferings. And that's four verse 13, right? Uh, just as Christ suffered, uh, so it will be for the whole church. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, this is verse 15, let him not be ashamed, right? If we suffer, it's not because we've done anything wrong, not in the least, but instead, this is the glory of God. And as we glorify God with our words, with our lips, in our songs and prayers and praise, uh, in, in, in the midst of our sufferings, right, the, the world will look at us and marvel. And also the Lord will prove himself to be faithful, right? And so uh, uh, instead of suffering in this world as evil people, as sinners, as uh, what does he say? Not just sinners, but uh, uh, an evildoer, a thief, a meddler, Right. Mm-hmm. I, you could you can imagine a person who's all, you know puffed up on uh, conspiracy theory, right? And for him uh, uh, to ensure the survival of the church in the world, he has to be engaged in subversive politics and actions and underground resistance, right? I imagine that that's probably what Saint Peter has in mind when he talks about being a meddler. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know that I have to subvert yeah. the order of this world in order for my family to survive, for my church to survive, etc. Instead, the Christians should, in an open way, embrace the persecutions when they come and make sure that nobody can call the Christians when they're suffering sinners, right? Because we murder no one. We steal from no one. We tell the truth, right? We honor our elders. We don't undermine them. And that leads into the fifth chapter. In the fifth chapter, uh, we move to the estate of the church. And now, for the very first time in the epistle, Peter's going to be speaking directly to pastors. Let's go ahead and take a look at what Peter says then. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the text for today, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. Pastor Flame, we both have talked about this being a part of the table of duties, specifically talking to pastors. The word that Peter uses is elders. Why are we calling these elders pastors? I think it's because of the context here. It's quite clear that when St. Peter is talking about elders, he's not talking about old people in a very general way. And in fact, in the greater context of the New Testament, you see that the word elder is used in two uh, very contextual and specific ways. So the first way it's used is among the Jews. There, an elder might be a man who had um, a high position within the synagogue. Oftentimes, it sounds like when Jesus talks about the elders among the Jews and, and the evangelists talk about the elders among the Jews, that these would be the men serving on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, but not but not exclusively. So like, for instance, in Luke chapter 7, verse 3, where Jesus is grabbed uh, to go and to see to Jairus at his daughter, it's the elders of the synagogue who are there, right? So the, the men of high position uh, of the religious establishment of that particular town, not just in all of Israel or something like that. Uh, and then and the, the second context and the second meaning comes from the Christian church itself, beginning in the book of Acts. And then it uh, this meaning uh, you can see reiterated through the epistles, through the letters that the evangelists, apostles sent to the churches. Uh, and here the elders are, are the people who have a duty to the rest of the church to be engaged in preaching and in teaching. Uh, and so uh, a couple of references for that. Check out First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. And then again, uh, uh, to hear how they've been put into an office, that is, into an official capacity uh, with, a, with very specific duties. A couple of good places to look would be Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where uh, Paul tells Titus, the bishop in Crete, hey, you have to appoint elders through the laying on of hands, right? Uh, and then also in James chapter 5, verse 14, uh, you have... Uh, James say, uh, if somebody is sick, go and call for the elders to visit them and to pray for them, right? And that is the prayer of the church. What's very great uh, about uh, following the, what's very great? I don't know if you can say it that way, but what is great <laughs> about following the, the uh, definition of elder through the uh, pastoral epistles and, and uh, you know, Paul's letters, and even in the letter of James, is that you see that uh, the things that you receive from your pastor on a Sunday to Sunday basis, and even through the week when the pastor goes and visits, when he teaches a Bible study, right? When he uh, teaches the confirmants and prepares them to, to be welcomed into the church as adult members or, or prepares young children to receive Holy Communion. Uh, these are the very things that you would expect from the elders as described in the New Testament. And so, uh, as far back as we look in Lutheran preaching and teaching, all the way back to Martin Luther himself in the time of the Reformation, we have understood the word elder to mean a pastor, uh, someone who has the preaching office, somebody who has been called by Christ through the church to preach to a particular group of saints in a specific place. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. 
to mm. these elders. Now, and Peter is is an apostle. I mean, normally, you know, we we refer to him as Saint Peter or the Apostle Peter. Yet here he calls himself a fellow elder. What what does that have to say about about this office of the whole ministry and and how it relates to the office of apostle and and I mean, that that seems pretty like a pretty big deal that Peter calls himself a fellow elder to these elders in these churches in Asia. I know. And it's such a wonderful way of describing his own office as an apostle. Just yesterday, I had one of the kids in my uh, classes and on the school side of things ask me, hey, pastor, how is it that you think that you have the right to speak for God to forgive sins? And I said, well, let's look at these verses in especially like Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus gives the keys to the apostles. And then in John chapter 20, raised from the dead, Jesus says to the disciples who are gathered around him, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Right. And still today, as I went to go give communion to one of my uh, dear saints this morning, Uh, He asked me the question. Well, I understand, Pastor, that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the apostles, to the 11 there. And I understand that he also uh, told them that they could forgive sins. So how is it that the pastors today think that they can forgive sins? Well, this is why it's so comforting to hear uh, the office of preaching the gospel and of forgiving sins of feeding the sheep as a shepherd is is being equivocated by St. Peter himself, right? So he speaks as an elder in the church and as an elder that is distinct from the other elders. Why? And this is important because he was a witness, an eyewitness, I would say, to the sufferings of Christ. A witness to the sufferings of Christ, right? And in this way, the apostles are in fact distinct from the rest of the preachers and the teachers. They're distinct because they were there, they saw what happened, and then uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they committed to preaching and then finally to writing the holy accounts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, which we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And also, uh, they continued to preach the consequences of the cross and resurrection to the rest of the church, right, for their forgiveness, life, and salvation in in the New Testament, in the the epistles, the letters to the churches. Uh, And so, Also, when we go back to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, you remember that St. Paul says to Titus, the bishop there, appoint elders among you, right? Uh, the, The apostles know that they're likely going to follow Jesus into the grave for the sake of the gospel, that they will die. But that doesn't mean the ministry dies. The ministry continues. The preaching of the apostles themselves continues through the mouths of other men, right? Remember, it's not the apostles themselves that are the saviors of the church, but Christ. And Christ gives his word first, of course, to the apostles, and then the apostles uh, hand over that that deposit, as St. Paul calls it to Timothy, right? The, the deposit to other men. And then they, these men have the charge to preach, to teach, to administer the means of grace. And that uh, and that's a sort of chain of ministry of, of one generation of men handing it down to the next, uh, you know, the charge to preach the gospel, to forgive sins, to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper. This has been going on for 2000 years, right? I know in other churches, uh, they like to talk about apostolic succession. And what they try to do in their churches is to uh, come up with a plausible story that this 
apostle put his hands on this man and this man put his man, his hands on another man. And that's how they try to trace the uh, apostolic lineage through the church, uh, which is a dubious exercise. I have a feeling that records get pretty sketchy if you get further back than maybe 1500 years. I'm just saying. Uh, nevertheless, the true apostolic succession, and there is one, is of the doctrine, the preaching of the gospel, the word of Christ that saves us, right? And that has been faithfully handed down for 2,000 years in the church. And thanks be to God, even though uh, the word that has been handed down has been muddied or confused by false teaching and by error, you could think of the darkness of the papacy especially doing this. Nevertheless, the Lord, through his own word, reforms the church and draws men back to the true preaching of the gospel by which the church is set free from sins and continues to look forward to its hope in the in the resurrection. So that would be the same way we would understand the words in the Nicene Creed in the third article when we would confess the holy Christian and apostolic church. We're not talking about the the laying on of hands that I can trace back to an apostle. I don't I don't think I have that, Pastor Fleming. Maybe you do. <laughs> but the but the apostolic church is to say that that we still the church teaches what the apostles taught taught, which is what Christ gave them, which of course is as he says in, in John's gospel, Jesus just said what he got from his father. So I mean to be the apostolic church is to have the true divine doctrine that comes from God himself. Yeah, that's right. It's the passing down of the doctrine. As long as we have the Holy Scriptures, we are an apostolic church, right? We're in the tradition of the apostles. And so when you as a pastor, right, Timothy, when you when you read through 1 Peter and you prepare to preach on that for your flock, right? It's as if Peter himself was handing on to you the same doctrine that he received from Christ. You know, mm. it has the same Holy Spirit. It has the same efficacy, the same power to save souls. And thanks be to God for that, that finally, in, at the end of the day, it's not about how great a dude Peter was or even how great we are. It's about the fact that the word of the Lord continues uh, from one generation to the next. And by the word alone, right, the Christ holds together his church, sanctifies his church and provides for it in the future. And that should be a comfort both to the pastor and the people, that that this is the doctrine that comes from Christ himself. It has his authority, which means it's not about me as the pastor. And and for the people, it's not about who that man is, but it is about that word that he is preaching. And I mean, what what a comfort that really is to know that that this is coming from from Christ himself. I mean, th- as you were talking some of your recent conversations, you know, that question that's sometimes asked, sometimes I think it's in the, the corporate of corporate confession absolution, as well as private, mm. that question, you know, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? And the answer is, is yes. So it should be of, of the word that is preached, that what the pastor preaches is nothing different than what Peter preached, which is nothing different than what Christ received or what Christ gave to Peter and what God gave to Christ. I mean, this that's a great comfort to us as, as we preach and as we hear that, that what are we listening for? It's, it's for the word of God itself. There is a real question about authenticity. Uh, do I belong to the true church? Is this the genuine church? Mm. How do I know? I mean, that's a real problem with folks who, who don't want to belong to just a sect, right? Mm. They don't want to be right. sectarians. They don't want to belong to a hiccup in history, which certainly the Missouri Synod can seem like from a historical <laughs> human perspective. 
right? There's a lot of like weird stuff in Missouri Synod history. If it hadn't been for one particular person, one particular decision, where would it all be? So how dare we say that we are the true visible church on earth, right? It's not because we we hang our hat on our particular history. God forbid. I mean, talk about a bunch of sinners, right? No, it's because we have the, the good deposit of the gospel and that uh, we hold fast to the words of the Holy Scripture, the preaching of the apostles. And that's why we say that we're not just a sect. We are the true apostolic church, right? Mm. Because we are staying in the bounds of the apostles' preaching and we're rejoicing in those words. You know, we're not looking for something else. We're not trying to draw people away from the words of the apostles. Instead, we're exhorting people to, hey, look here, see what I have found, this great treasure without, you know, that you could hardly put a price on. In fact, the only thing that could buy it is the blood of Christ. That's what we're drawing people to, uh, the treasures of the Holy Scriptures, which is the preaching of the apostles. And if it so happens that God raises up a church on the other side of the world, right, through the, the Holy Scriptures, through the word, and they become evangelical and preaching the gospel in distinction from the law, right? Giving comfort to Christian consciences for the sake of Christ alone. They are our brothers and sisters, even if we don't even know them. They are apostolic as we are apostolic, right? Because everything hangs upon the word. Uh, this is why St. Peter, by the way, at the very beginning of this epistle, made such, such a big deal about this. How are the Christians born into their heavenly reality? Uh, they are born again, from the imperishable word, through the imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding word of God, right? And he quotes then from Isaiah chapter 40, the word of the Lord remains forever. He doesn't say the indelible character passed on through a succession of hands. That's not what he says. Uh, he doesn't say because of a, a unique history and tradition called the Christian church. That's also significantly not what he says. He also doesn't say because we have a shared liturgy or something like that. No, he talks about having the word. If we have the word, we have everything. If we have the preaching of the apostles, we have everything. Everything else will fall into its proper place. And so with that, then trying to, to move us forward a little bit in the text, when Peter then says to his fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God, mm. then that shepherding of the flock of God is, is nothing other than passing on this word that's been given to them, right? Yeah, that's right. This is such, uh, you know, you study the Holy Scriptures and your eyes are opened to the wonder and the beauty of it, uh, because you'll know in this Eastertide, uh, from the story of Jesus meeting up with the disciples as they were fishing up in Galilee at the Sea of Tiberias. And this is in John chapter 21. Peter sees that Jesus is there and he jumps into the water. He swims to the shore. They eat breakfast together. And then Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Right? And after Peter says to Jesus each of the three times, "You, I, I love you. You know that I love you. What does he say? He says, Feed my sheep, right? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And Jesus is restoring Peter to the preaching and teaching office. So Jesus, just as he is feeding Peter with God's grace and mercy and peace for the sake of the blood that he poured out on the cross, now he is asking Peter to give that same preaching of peace, forgiveness, and reconciliation with God to the church. And now here's Peter this is, right, the answer to the question. How, why is it, Pastor, that you forgive sins and do it with God's authority? It's because of what Peter is telling me to do here. He says, I exhort the elders among you, the pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd it. 
How are we supposed to shepherd it? We shepherd it in the same way that Peter shepherds, uh, by preaching Jesus Christ and his blood, his righteousness, his crucifixion and resurrection, the hope that we have in Christ, right? Uh, and so in the same way as Jesus gave Peter the charge to shepherd, to take care of the flock, so also the pastors today have the same charge, the same command, shepherd, take care of the flock. Uh, don't treat them like you know some sort of corporate entity in the world. Instead, hold them together with the word, the voice of the good shepherd, as we hear about in John chapter 10. The sheep hear my voice, and they follow Christ through hearing his voice and by trusting in that voice. Peter faithfully preached the voice of Jesus, and so do we. What is it about the picture of shepherd that makes it such a, an applicable one to the pastoral office? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd like to figure this out at some point by getting a couple of sheep. So right now <laughs> I have I have goats at home, right? And goats, I, as far as I could tell, they could care less. Sometimes they could care. If you have food, they care, right? If you sit next to a goat, eventually it's going to come up to you and nibble on your on your pant leg because it wants something from you, right? But the sheep, I think, are probably a little bit more dependent upon the shepherd. The goats could do it on their own, right? But the sheep are probably, I don't know, this is speculation. I'm not a farmer. They're probably more dependent upon the shepherd to lead them to the green pastures, right? To protect them from the wolves. And in the same way, the pastors have to feed the sheep. They have to take them to the green pastures of God's word so that they can feast on the gospel. Whereas St. Peter called it a little bit earlier, the pure spiritual milk, right? And in feasting upon the gospel, they are fed and they are comforted. And they are kept close to their Savior. But the shepherd also carries the staff. Why? Because the devil is always attacking the church. And a little bit further on in chapter 5, Peter's going to talk about the devil being that roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, right? Jesus talks about the wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Here Peter says, well, also like a lion walking around the perimeter of the flock looking to pick off one of the sheep if the shepherd has either run away, right, or is too cowardly to fight the lion. In the same way, the devil raises up sin in and among the saints of God in the congregation, and he also attacks with false teachings and trying to say things like, well, Jesus has done his part for salvation. What have you done to meet him halfway in between, right? Have you made your choice for Christ? Everything's hanging upon, you know, the, the decision whether or not you can activate the will to grab onto Christ, uh, you know. Uh, there are all kinds of false teachings that the devil is always attacking the church with. The false teaching that the Mass, the, the Lord's Supper, is a propitiatory sacrifice. Our Roman Catholic friends still believe that to a certain extent, right? And they still teach their catechumens that. How terrible when the Lord's Supper is, in fact, God's grace come to me in the body and blood of Jesus. It's his testament. It's not a sacrifice we give to God right? Instead, it's his mercy and love and grace poured out for us and, and for us to eat and to drink. What a So anyways, as the devil attacks through false teachings, false practices, and sins in and among the congregation, the pastor is there to preach against sin, to admonish through the law, right? To comfort the broken consciences and, and, and the sorrowing souls through the gospel, and to also speak directly to false teachings when they come up. It's easy. I don't know, uh, Timothy, you have to tell me. I find it always a little bit hard to discover among the members of the church uh, how folks have been taken in by something that sounds nice and Christian, but in fact is very far away from the gospel, right? Mm. 
And and uh, I and I know as soon as I try to speak directly to that, it will end up upsetting people. And the last thing that I want to do <laughs> as a pastor <laughs> is to upset people. But here St. Peter says, no, if you want to be a true pastor, if you want to be a true shepherd, you have to keep the wolves back. You have to keep their false doctrines from robbing the these Christian souls of their comfort, which is trusting in Christ, right? Yeah, yeah. Sheep, sheep need a shepherd. We're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, April 27th. We're studying 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 with Pastor Brian Flamey. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamey, prior to the break, we were talking about the shepherding of the flock of God. Peter also uses the term exercising oversight. You've used the word bishop before. I think the word bishop has to do with oversight. What is What does the pastoral office have to do with oversight? Yeah, so the pastoral office uh, looks over the flock. I mean, I, I find it helpful, helpful to think in literal terms here. So uh, the word episcopacy, right, which everybody's heard of, actually comes from the Greek word episcopi. And then that means to just oversee, to look over the tops of everybody's heads, to see what's coming, right, to see everybody in the church. Uh, the, the pastor who doesn't know his members and the pastor right, who uh, doesn't know the dangers that the congregation faces can hardly do his job of shepherding, right? How is he going to protect the flock if he doesn't know the members of his flock? How is he going to protect the flock if he can't see coming from a distance their enemies, whether it be their personal sins or the false teachings, right, or uh, various other kinds of demonic attack? And so exercising oversight isn't, isn't really about Hey, he's a big guy. He's in charge. He has power, right? And now he's going to conform us to his desires. That's how I think sometimes we misconstrue in our minds the, the understanding of a bishop or an overseer. No, the overseer is a protector, uh, somebody who watches over the flock. And think about those beautiful paintings of Jesus, the good shepherd, right? Uh, usually he's standing in, in a field and the sheep are around him. Sometimes he's holding fast to his chest uh, one of the little lambs, right? He's holding a shepherd's crook in his, in his uh, hand. But what do you notice about Jesus? He's standing up straight. Uh, he's not sitting among the sheep. Do you know of any artwork where Jesus is sitting among the sheep? I, I should ask you, I suppose, before I go on further. I, I don't. I, when I think of Jesus sitting, I think there's one where he's, he's welcoming little children as he's seated. But usually I think, like you said, when he's a shepherd, he's standing among yeah. the flock, often carrying them. That's right. He's carry, Yeah, he's carrying a sheep. He's holding the staff in his hand. He's standing above the flock and he's looking out over the flock, right? He knows the sheeps, uh, or the sheeps. <laughs> he knows the sheep by name, right? And they know the shepherd because they can see him. 
And uh, so oftentimes, you know, in the church, uh, the pastors get this sort of, uh, I don't know, this weird humility about the pastoral office where, you know, they'll try to not wear a clerical collar because they don't want to be too puffed up in pride. I, I, I mean, I, I, I think I used to understand that. I'm not sure if I do anymore. Now I like to wear the clerical collar to show people that, hey, I'm the shepherd, right? Yeah, the shepherd is very visible to the sheep. That if somebody is looking for someone to, to preach the gospel, right, they come to me. Uh, and that's good. That's what I want, not only for my, my members, but also from the members of my community. If they're looking for someone who, who knows something about the Holy Scriptures and is able to, to tell them something about it, perhaps I'll have a chance to say words of gospel to them, you know, so that they will come to know Jesus, you know. Uh, so it, it, the same way as Jesus stands above the flock, the pastor also stands above the flock. He knows each of the members. He keeps track of them. He looks after their needs spiritually, right? He's in conversation with them always. And, uh, and he's always on the lookout for danger. Uh, that's, his, his, that's what I think about oversight and, and uh, what sometimes is called uh, bishoping, I suppose, uh, I don't know if there, if you had any other thoughts about that, Timothy. No, I, I think I think that's a very helpful explanation, particularly the idea of you know knowing the flock, looking out over the flock, quite literally, just overseeing. I'm looking over the flock, and and what you said about the you know wearing the clerical shirt and and like I'm identifiable. I mean, it's. It's comforting to see that picture of Jesus as the good shepherd, where you very clearly see him. That's my good shepherd. So, so how how comforting it should be to know that's the pastor, that's the one who's there to give me the gospel. And when I don't know what to think or what to believe, he's the one. I need to go to him. He's going to take care of me. That's the attitude of oversight. And I think Peter, he helps us with what oversight does and doesn't mm. look like as as we continue in the text. So he he gives these three comparisons and contrasts. He yeah. says, not this, but that. So the first one is not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Take us into that first attitude of the pastor that Peter describes. Sure, absolutely. Not under compulsion. That one uh, took me by surprise. I've read over this text many, many times. I've heard it preached probably at my ordination. And then again, like when the pastors or when the young men were sent out about to become pastors from the seminary. Uh, and yet I think I still see myself under compulsion. Uh, that I am fulfilling a a, uh, a command from God. It's all law to me to preach the gospel, to baptize, to pray, to do all of these things. And sometimes the load is so heavy that I can scarcely stand up underneath it, right? And yet here is St. Peter telling me, no, you're not under compulsion. And that uh, threw me for a loop today in, in considering this and meditating upon it. Because I, it is true, I have been charged and commanded by God, right? But I'm not supposed to be a slave to my commands. Instead, this is the oversight, it, it, how it's, it, it helps us to understand not under compulsion. Uh, just as Jesus looks with love upon the flock, right? Because why? They're there, his sheep. He is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. So even his under shepherds, are supposed to look with love upon the flock. Now, maybe this is really weird for your listeners. I'm not sure. They they just sort of assume that, that you know all the pastors uh, have these hearts bursting with just pure love. And I wish that was true. I really do. <laughs> but 
uh, and so often the pastors are are hemmed in by the commands of the law and and they are so attacked by the devil and his demons that the devil wants to convince them that this is the hardest and most painful job in the whole world to the point where the pastor sees the flock on Sunday and he winces just thinking about all of the spiritual burdens he's going to be asked to carry through his prayers, through his preaching, through his teaching, through his counseling and all these things. Man, what a trap. What a terrible place to end up. Here, we are supposed to see the flock with Jesus's eyes, with compassion and love. And this cannot come from a servile obedience to the commands, even the preaching, uh, the commands to, to uh, you know, to, to preach, to pray, to administer the sacraments. Instead, now, I don't know, maybe this is the controversial thing I'll say today. Uh, even the pastor has to do his duty from love uh, and the love that's from faith, true Christian faith. Uh, it's true. We're not Donatists in that uh, we really think that if a, a godless man is in the pulpit preaching the gospel, that the gospel is still efficacious, right? But it's the worst of all worlds if you uh, have a pastor who is godless and is still mouthing the words of the gospel because he cannot uh, ultimately stay faithful and true to the charge of preaching, teaching, and ministering the sacraments, right? Because he does not have the eyes of the good shepherd which look with compassion upon the sheep. How can you rightly administer law and gospel? How can you do it if you don't look on the sheep with the, the eyes of Christ, with, the, with that compassion, with that selfless love that comes that can only come from faith? I just don't know how you can do it. As you were talking about this this contrast here, not under compulsion, mm. but willingly. Yes. I, I was thinking about this in, con in connection with that John 10 text, the way Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd— and how he he lays down his life. He says, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus is willing. Hmm. At the same time, he also says, I have authority to do this, to lay my life down and take it up again because I've received the charge from my father. And so, I mean, for Jesus as the good shepherd, those two things go together, that he receives the charge from his father. That's a, a command, but it's not a compulsion because he does it willingly. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah, and go then ahead. thinking of well, and just I mean, I'm trying because I've I've been trying to connect the dots on that John 10 text for a little bit now as I've been thinking about especially some of that. But but thinking about what you're saying about how can the pastor do this unless you know he has that faith. The way that Jesus talks earlier in that John 10 text, that you know, he says, as the good shepherd, he knows the father, the father knows him, and that the way he knows his sheep and the way the sheep know him is the same thing, or or they're comparable. And, and I mean, I just, I'm, I'm still trying to connect these dots in my own head and maybe you can, but I think that this, I think what Jesus says there in John 10 about his own role as the good shepherd acting willingly yet under the charge of the father. And then the way that his sheep know him and respond to him is comparable to the way that he knows and responds to his father. I think that applies to the pastors here too. And maybe there's a, it's, it's a tension, you know, cause we, we do have the command. We, we promise to do these things in our ordination and yet we we do them willingly, even as our Lord did did His work willingly. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. There, no, you spoke something that that helps me immensely. Uh, in that, so I always get tied up in knots, usually around Passion Tide, you know, the last two weeks before Good Friday, in trying to consider how Jesus, you know, you know, as the Son of God in obedience to the Father. He goes to the cross, 
right? He suffers the, the father's wrath against the world's sin, right? But at the same time, at no point in the Gospels is Jesus the hapless victim, or is he under a kind of compulsion between, a, let's say, like a, a tyrant and an unwilling slave? Instead, I, I remember the, the words from the hymn, a lamb goes uncomplaining forth. You remember mm, in the yeah, third stanza, hymn. Father, or what does it say? Yes, Father, yes, most willingly. I'll bear what you command me. My will conforms to your decree. I'll do what you have asked me. And then you have Gerhard commentating on that saying, Oh, wondrous love, what have you done? The father offers up his son desiring our salvation. And it's not just the father who desires that salvation or just the love of the father, but it's the love of the son who loves his father in obedience to the father, does his will, but not just towards the father, but also towards those he will save and redeem right through the love that he pours out upon the cross. So the, this is the, so this is the willingness to bring us back into the text. This is the profound and mysterious willingness uh, that now Jesus expects to be borne out in the lives of the people of his church, in the preachers and teachers, right? In their willingness uh, to love the sheep just as Christ has loved his church, right? And, and also in the sheep, hopefully also <laughs> to love their shepherds, right? Uh, as, as, uh, as the overseers look to their good shepherd for strength in everything that they do, right? And for his help, his grace. The second thing that Peter mentions for pastors, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What's that mean? Not for shameful gain. Uh, yeah, I like the, uh, the old King James version is probably a little more wooden- and faithful to the Greek, not for filthy lucre. What a great expression, filthy lucre. I grew up with that. My dad would tell us, beware of filthy lucre. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, it, it, it could take it, it, it there. Uh, the money is filthy if it becomes your idol, right? If mammon is the center of, uh, of your world, if that's the God that you're serving and not the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, uh, then you ought not be a shepherd in Christ's church. And this is a great temptation for pastors, a terrible, terrible, terrible temptation, right? Because oftentimes in the church, let's just face it, pastors are underpaid. There's district salary guidelines, right? And how many of the pastors are well below those guidelines? And this gives opportunity in the pastor's own hearts uh, to be tempted towards great sin, great sin. And it becomes a, a, an obsession of the pastors and thinking about, well, if my sheep really cared about the gospel, if they really cared about what I was giving them, then why don't they actually pay me like a living wage, you know, at, as the, the district uh, spells out for me in this position, right? And the devil will, will attack in this way in getting the pastor to obsess over money as if Jesus, the good shepherd, can't find a way to feed you and to take care of you, to clothe you, Right. And so uh, when attacked with these temptations uh, to desire more money, right, to ask for more money, to demand more money, uh, Jesus wants us to see that we should not be doing this, caring for the sheep for the sake of money. Instead, uh, 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 how, how, does the, how does the wording go here? Oh, I flipped my page. Eagerly is the eagerly, way the ESV yes. translates it. Yeah, but eagerly, right? Eagerly. The third thing he brings up, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This domineering over those in your charge would 
there's we talked about overseeing earlier it seems the domineering would be taking that farther than the word actually intends yeah it's interesting that the word there uh in the bible is uh how do you say it underlording <laughs> like in english we talk about overlording right and, and overlord is like this tyrant figure who stands with great power over people that he punishes with you know or capriciously or something like that uh, but the the Greek word is really interesting. This this underlord, and the idea there is uh, instead of being an overseer, someone who stands above the flock, looking down on the flock with compassion and love, looking out to the horizon, looking for the threats coming. Uh, the underlord has his feet on the ground, right? And what is he looking at? He's looking at his own feet as they're smashing the sheep, just crushing them, right? Either from uh, uh, like the wicked vice of violence, of, of having a, a heart that just wants to hurt people. Such people do exist and even probably uh, occupy some uh, pastoral offices uh, in the church, as, as it is to admit, you know. Uh, and also to, to crush them through, not perhaps not even by their own will, but, but in, in, in error, right? By teaching a false doctrine, right? They're not feeding the sheep, but maybe they're feeding them with, with law. And saying that the way to heaven is through obedience, right, and, and purity of living, and never once mentioning Christ or the forgiveness of sins or the grace that comes from God alone and not from human beings. Hmm. Peter then points the pastor's eyes to the chief shepherd, the and that's a I love that term. I mean, we know Jesus as the good shepherd. Here he calls him the chief shepherd to those who are sometimes we call pastors under shepherds. I think mm. from from the the opposite of this chief chief shepherd. Peter's been talking about the last day, the appearance of Christ, his revealing in chapter four, quite extensively. He brings that up again here for the pastors. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why does the pastor need to have his eyes focused on the appearance of the chief shepherd? Well, the pastor is a Christian like any other, right? I mean, ultimately his hope is not in uh, fulfilling the office to the satisfaction of the law's demand. But ultimately, his hope is in Christ, his own good shepherd, who has laid his life down for the pastor and supplies the grace that the pastor needs, right, to fulfill his office, ministry, his calling. Uh, and so uh, just as the rest of the sheep look forward to the coming of the good shepherd Jesus in the clouds in, in great glory on the last day, uh, lifting up their eyes to see their redemption. So also the pastors are looking forward to that day. Uh, and this is uh, very humbling because I think about how many pastors out there, myself included, who carry out the, the pastoral tasks and duties, oftentimes with uh, fear and trembling, right? Uh, and all we see are our weaknesses and and uh, our shortcomings and our failures. And and I think that that gives opportunity, if taken to an extreme, for the devil to say, well, you've failed too much. You know, you've let down the flock once too many. You know, you have been feasting on the sheep instead of feeding them. How dare you? What, what kind of under shepherd are you? If, when G, if Jesus were to come back today, think about how quickly he would throw you into the, the fire, fiery pits of hell because of how poorly you have been. Right. But here. Uh, St. Peter is saying in the same way as the rest of the church looks with hope at, at Jesus, right? Knowing the forgiveness that is found in him, knowing how Jesus has come, not from God's anger and wrath, but from his love. So also it's necessary even for the under shepherds 
to look forward to Christ coming in the same way. Not as an angry judge who will destroy them, right? But as the one who forgives sins, who strengthens them, who loves them. I mean, how how profound is that, you know, for a pastor to, to come to the realization that, that, yes, Jesus even loves you. You're not just compelled by the law, but you're also uh, someone who has been lifted up by the gospel and by God's grace. Jesus has not just died for the flock, he's even died for you. Yeah, I mean, and to have Peter call Jesus the chief shepherd then, when he's just said to the elders, you shepherd the flock, but now remember who the the good shepherd is, who the chief shepherd is, and he's the one who's shepherding you, dear mm. pastor. He's the one who who is taking you into eternal life to crown you with this unfading crown of glory, not like the the grass that withers from Isaiah 40 that he preached early, but but the, the unfading crown of glory here. We, we've got just about five minutes here, Pastor Fleming. I want to make sure we, we touch, there's so much here in this text. It's just fantastic. But I want to make sure we, we touch on verse five. Mm. One reason is because he talks about younger and being subject to the elders. And we've been talking about elders all along, not really having to do with age. Mm. seems like age plays in here. And then especially, I want to hear you talk a little bit about with, again, the five minutes, the humility and why this is so important here in, at the close of this section. Yeah. So, Again, I think that if we were trying to say elders at the very beginning of this passage meant pastors, this might be the verse that makes us think twice, right? But here, uh, Peter is talking to younger people, uh, young men, you know, young people. uh, So maybe this is just a general distinction between the two. Well, again, the context before is so specific about oversight and shepherding that we have to not easily let ourselves be dislodged off of the meaning of elder as pastor. And also, this is common among the apostles, especially St. John, to refer to those under their charge, right? The sheep as little children. You know, this is the way that Jesus spoke to the disciples, his own little flock. This is how St. John in his first epistle in the second chapter speaks. Little children, he addresses them. Right. And and this is very, very helpful. I think as a pastor, instead of looking at the sheep and saying to myself, dumb sheep, why don't you just listen? You know, why are you so stubborn? Instead, I should look at them less as dumb animals and as little children. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. Children that demand my love and compassion. Right. Uh, it's so beautiful. The love of a parent for the child. There's something unfeigned there. There's something that that's absolutely not forced. You know, the father sees the son and the father's heart is open to the son. In the same way, uh, the pastor looks upon the flock and his pastoral heart, so to speak. Man, I'm using such subjective language today. I'm kind of ashamed of myself. The pastoral heart is open towards the flock as, as a parent would be towards the children, right? So this is totally in keeping with the language that that uh, Peter himself has introduced in speaking of the elders. This isn't just about old people and young people, but it's about those who have been charged with loving and those who are loved. And how to be subject to the elders is, in other words, uh, to be under them so that you can receive gifts of love. Just as a, a child receives gifts of love from a parent, food, clothing, shelter, as I remind my kids constantly. <laughs> Right? Uh, so also the church receives gifts of love from the pastor, which is what? The, the shepherding that comes from Jesus, the preaching of the forgiveness of sins, right? The word of God that endures forever. 
And finally, with just about two minutes, Pastor Flemmy, why is it that all of you then need to be clothed with humility toward one another? Help yeah, us wrap good. things up this morning. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, at the very at the very end, he opens it up to elders and to the young people. All of you, be humble. Uh, the pastors are not men who stand by their own authority, but under the authority of Christ, right? And so we are constantly in subjection to Christ. And listening to his voice, taking our orders from him, conforming our will to the will of Christ is so that we can love the flock even as he has loved us, right? So also the Christians, when they come to church, they have to realize that this isn't a power struggle between clergy and laity. Heaven forbid. I hate it when our life at church is defined in those terms. No, you, we, we as Christians, when we come into the church building on Sunday or when we speak to our pastor, we come in the humility of knowing that I am a poor, miserable sinner right? How beautiful is it in our divine service on Sunday before we receive communion that we all confess together, the pastor included. He just doesn't look at you when you confess your sins, but with you, you kneel down towards the altar and say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities, so on and so forth. In humility, we come to the good shepherd and in humility, Jesus lifts us up, right? If we are broken, if we are hurt, if we are, if we are wounded by sin, by guilt and shame, Jesus, the good shepherd, through the ministration of his under shepherds, finds you, he picks you up, and he carries you back to the flock, and he feeds you with God's grace. Pastor Brian Flamy is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today with 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Pastor Flamy, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about 1 Peter or 2 Peter and Jude, which are coming up later in this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.